Coming up on this week's show, how to do word processing on your NES. A weird Zelda bug revealed. And we chat with the Xbox co-creator, Kevin Backer. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, of course, point-and-click adventures all over again at the moment. New Simon the Sorcerer game on the way. New Monkey Island just landed recently. And their book, The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games, is a massive 528-page celebration of that incredible genre, containing extensive interviews with key developers and running through some of the most beloved point-and-clicks of all time. Check it out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 347, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another packed episode, bringing you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days. We'll do a little roundtable, bringing you up to date on those news stories. And of course, a veteran of the industry in the second half of the show for an interview like we do every week. And now that we are into October, I must admit, I do love this time of year. You know, here in the UK, it's getting dark at like six o'clock in the evenings now. Even, you know, put the heating on if you could afford it. Those Halloween films are starting. Although I did forget, you know, obviously with us being in a pandemic for a couple of years now, that actually um, all the old traditional illnesses still exist, including the dreaded cold and flu. So if I sound uh, a little bit deeper than usual, I mean, you might like it, Joe. Um, <laughs> that's my excuse this week. <laughs> well, we always have a fair in the city. So it's like, a, you know, a fair comes to comes to town and uh yeah when i was a kid it was always a time that it would get really cold that year so have you been out on the fair dan and uh you know party i haven't been down for a uh for a cock on a stick <laughs> i must admit which which we should probably explain because you put this on your face but a cock on a stick is a nottingham thing isn't it yeah yeah so it's it's a traditional like a cockerel um but also we have a <laughs> we it's a very weird fair it's named after geese so it's called the goose mm. fair and um, we eat peas, um, hot peas with um, mint sauce in that. It's it's very weird, <laughs> the whole the whole fair. But uh, I do enjoy it. And you know, with the pandemic, it it, it ran it runs for a hundred years. You know, this this fair has, and it's yeah. only been shut down when the plague happened before. So uh, the wow. pandemic actually shut it down for two years. So it's really good to kind of have it back. And of course, all the stores are exactly the same, but this time you could win a switch. I mean, like, you got any snazzes? maybe some mini consoles yeah yeah well well, ravi's been out and about of course uh, joe you talked last week about you uh getting into the the metaverse on your uh, quest vr you did ask actually are there any suggestions for retro games yeah on the uh on the oculus quest and uh, we did have a few actually uh Kinos on um, our Discord, he suggested uh, something called Emu VR, which looks really cool. I don't know if you've checked this out before. It's really a uh, an emulator in virtual reality of your bedroom yeah. when you were a teenager or a kid. And actually you can play, and there's RetroArch in there as well, so you can play stuff like PlayStation N64, GameCube, Dreamcast, Super Nintendo, even arcade games as well. Um, it's a bit of a work in progress at the moment. And it's even got um, net play as well. So you and I could have a go of this online, Joe. It looks pretty cool. I've I've just I've been looking at it just before we started the show because I, I saw you put it in the uh, show notes and I wasn't sure if it was a news article or not. Yeah, this looks really really fun. Um, I'm going to download this tonight. 
literally as soon as we finish this, I'm going to eat my dinner and then I'm going to go download this and try and not get sucked into it until, you know, five, six in the morning. Um, Cause this looks absolutely amazing. And it is spot on what I said. I want to play retro in modern tech. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what well, I live and go. breathe. So this is absolutely perfect. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for the suggestion, Nisos. And uh, we do have a Discord, by the way. We're in there chatting all week. So if you do have any news articles you think will be good for us to chat about on the show, you can submit them in there. And we even have a little suggestion section for guests that you think will be good on the podcast as well. Now, we've had a few that we've reached out to over the last couple of weeks, thanks to suggestions in our Discord. And uh, this week, my word, you've scored a big one, Ravi. Oh, yes. This is a guest I've been after for absolutely ages. And this is one of our favourite best interviews that we've ever done it's uh so good you know so insightful this is a uh, kevin bacchus and uh he's a co-creator of the xbox so there, there were four guys that did the xbox and they were known as the kind of four musketeers within microsoft and um kevin was part of that um division and he also worked for some amazing companies so he worked for mindscape international before which were a huge company uh he's a development manager there and then he went on to DirectX. So he's a product manager for DirectX. So we, we talk about some really interesting stuff here, actually. You know, um, id Software and how they kind of worked with DirectX and they had to convince them because there was a big battle between OpenGL and uh, DirectX back then. But then how stuff like the development actually went to help with the Xbox, how the Xbox was created. You know, he did stuff like focus groups and they... And they kind of bought people in and they said, you know, Microsoft are going to make a console. And they said, mm. what, the guys who make spreadsheets? And everybody burst out laughing. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's really hard to convince people that the Xbox was actually going to be cool. And uh, it looked like Sony really, um, you know, put put the scares into Microsoft and uh, uh, got them really working. But also he was amazingly in that interview, which was... Uh, the attempt at Microsoft buying out Nintendo, which um, we saw some memos that were leaked recently about that. And uh, yeah, we, we get a bit of inside info on that one as well. So this interview is just mind-blowing. It's, it's got a little bit for everyone. You, you joined me, Joe, and uh, what did you think of the interview? Yeah, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, I think, you know, obviously, rather you... I- I don't want to brown your nose you too much, but obviously it was fantastically researched. And it was, like you said, there was a little bit of everything in there. It's his career, obviously Mindscape, but then mostly with DirectX and the Xbox and Microsoft and really interesting stories there. Um, a really cool story about Half-Life, which I won't spoil, you know, and the relationships that he had with, you know, Gabe from Valve and obviously with Bill Gates. And, and uh, you know, Sega as well, because... Um... I was getting there, you're spoiling it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was going to say, you you research it so well, you all about the Sega and the relationship with the Dreamcast. And then obviously the story of Nintendo. So there is literally, you know, in these stories and in, and in Kevin's history, there were, there's so much like in the retro world, you know, for PC and for console. And, you know, I, I just thought it was an absolutely fantastic uh, interview and definitely one of the top 10 for me that we've ever done. And the original Xbox as well, I mean, what a console. It's just, I think in many ways, obviously it didn't sell as well as the PlayStation 1, but in in some ways it kind of reminds me a bit of, not that it was a failure like the Dreamcast was, but it kind of reminds me in that vein that it was very, maybe underappreciated at the time. And the more I look back on it, the more revolutionary I think that system was. Well, it really got them going, didn't it, the Xbox? And now you look, you've got the three consoles kind of dominating, you know, Switch, PlayStation and Xbox. And uh 
it's pretty amazing how the landscape changed when you think about, you know, mm. the only company really there that had a history with stuff was Nintendo. And of course, games like, you know, Halo Combat Evolved, Dead or Alive 3, I remember seeing that for the first time on the original Xbox as well. So, uh, yeah, incredible systems. We're going to be here all about that, the inside story on the Xbox, and uh, some stories from Mindscape as well with this week's special guest, Kevin Backus. He'll be coming up in around 25 minutes from now. Now, of course, the first half of the podcast, that is where we bring you up to speed on the big headlines that have been happening in the world of retro from over the last week and plenty going on over the last seven days. You know, last week we were talking about this incredible new operating system for the Commodore 64, C64 OS. I know you were very impressed with that, Ravi. Oh, it's lovely. When you went yeah. through um, all the stuff that it can do, uh, but not wanting to feel left out. Someone's actually made another operating system, this time not quite as ambitious, but I think in many ways maybe even more impressive based on the hardware this is running on. This is an operating system, or at least the foundations of an OS, for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah, so the C64 one we saw was very complete. Like, um, you know, they'd worked on it for a long time. There was lots of applications and stuff. This is the basics, the kind of start of a, a possible OS. You know, it, it, it's it's looking a bit like a word processor processor to me, but it is called Nisos. Um, that's how he wants to pronounce it. Uh, Nes OS um, is, mm. is kind of spelled, but Nisos. And um, it's, it's very interesting. He, he looks like he's started to do some actual development on it and uh, using the features of the NES because the NES was a, a quite a, a low-powered machine to be, uh, you know, doing an operating system on. And um, you have to kind of consider, like, using the devices on the NES and stuff, how, how you're going to be able to do input, um, stuff like, you know, there's there's not a keyboard for it. Um, so you're going to... Well, there is. There, there is one yeah, there is. <laughs> oh, God. Is there? Yeah, so there was the Family Basic keyboard, uh, which was for the Famicom. Ah, okay. Um, and he's actually made it compatible with the 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 Nisos, so it, it's fully compatible. You know, it types and everything on there. He had to do quite a bit of work to get it working, and it. I'm not too sure if you can make it compatible with the the normal NES. So it works on the Famicom because the Famicom had hardwired in um, controllers, and then it had a 15 pin connector on the front of it which is what the family keyboard uses, but the, the American NES and the PAL NES have a nine-pin connectors for their you yeah. know controllers, which were removable. So I'm not too sure if you can get it to run with the keyboard on a PAL or a NTSC NES, but it certainly works if you're running it on a Famicom. That's why you're our console cool. expert, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with that in mind, it is compatible, you know, the word processor he's got on there. It is completely compatible with the controller. It seems a bit fiddly. Um, so there's 64 possible characters on there. And uh, to essentially go through them on the controller, you have to press the A button and then hold it, and it will cycle through all the characters. And then if you want to go back, you have to hold select and A to go backwards the other way. So then, you, you wouldn't want to write a dissertation using this? No, probably not. And then I think you press, is it the B button, which will move the cursor a space forward. And if you press select and B, it will move it backwards. Um, so definitely fiddly, but interesting that he's got it working on such a limited controller. Um, yeah, so this is, um, it, it's really two core applications he's made, isn't it? So this Enesource, it's um, a settings program where mm. you can go in and kind of fiddle around with um, the files that are stored 
in the um, the 2K of NVRAM he's got in there as well. Um, and you can do stuff like, you know, check out free system memory, show some stats about the, the system as well. And the main thing is a word processor. And what I think is very cool is you can actually save up to eight files that you can then load up again in mm. this word processor next time you actually launch it. So it is a proper word processor. And, you know, that's the important thing about having a word processor that you can save your work and go back to it another day. Yeah, and I think you're right there about the RAM as well and stuff because just storage is going to be a real issue on this if if mm. you're actually running anything. And if you're expanding it, adding programs and functionality, it's going to have to be really, really, like, finely tuned. Um, I, I don't know... Is there any way of expanding the kind of thing or having a bigger cart and uh, maybe a bit more RAM on the cart? Yeah, I mean, it's only got 2K of NVRAM in here at the moment. Uh, but there's also like a desktop as well where there are files that you can save on there and they've got icons as well. And there's, you know, all the, all the elements that you'd find in a, a basic graphical user interface. There's a, a mouse cursor there and a text cursor, uh, closed gadgets and stuff at the bottom too, so you can swap between the screens. So, I mean, it, it is very limited at the moment, but I think the fact that he's got the foundations of what we know as a, an operating system running on the NES, it is a pretty impressive foundation, I think, so far. And it's free, because, you know, we're talking about the Commodore 64 one last week, which I think is about £40. But like you said, Ravi, you know, years worth of work had gone into that. Uh, this at the moment, though, it's just kind of a, a little proof of concept, I suppose. And it's by a guy called Inkbox who's uh, put this video up on YouTube, and there's a website for it as well. So if you want to check out that, I'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, one of my favourite things about running my old computers, I've got to admit, you know, because a lot of people, when I make YouTube videos showing old PCs or old Amigas, that kind of thing, you always get a lot of people going, well, why bother having that around the house? Why don't you just run emulation? But I think for me, there's something so tangible about having the original hardware there, the feel of the keyboard under your fingers, you know, the floppy disks, putting them into the drive and the satisfaction of ejecting them and using the original mouse. It's just a, a different experience, isn't it? It's like that kind of physicality and you feel a lot more kind of connected with the machine as well. I, I, I really do love using the old ones because you actually like put something in the device and you could, even when you had a CD drive and it wouldn't have a loading tray, uh, on those like Mac minis and stuff, and it would just suck the disc in. I always kind of felt that was a bit wrong, you know. I need a bit of like physicality or or something. Or give me to a be caddy connected. on my CD-ROM yeah, drive, that's what I or need. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, generally, I'd say I'm kind of I'm in that halfway house kind of thing when it comes to retro computers. I'll use stuff like you know compact flashcards for replacements. I'll use EverDrives on my. Super Nintendo, my Mega Drive and that kind of thing. You know, I'm kind of all right to meet halfway, but there is one thing that I do miss about replacing a hard disk in an old PC, and that is the sound that old hard disks used to make. Do you remember, like, launching Windows 95 and hearing the disk just going crazy in your PC when I, it loaded up? Not even hearing it, feeling it vibrating in the desk. <laughs> that, was, that was a big part of it. And, you know, I think that kind of loading sound thing also works for every kind of retro format so you know people had the tape drives and that they'd, they'd be able to hear different tones in the tape and work out exactly what was going on with the tape i remember hearing sectors being read on a floppy drive and uh just thinking right we've loaded to this point oh there's a, there's a bit of an error, error there and um you know you'd start to feel kind of connected with the machine and especially with hard drives as well when you were reading something or the hard drive was going crazy you could hear some like 
immense noises and stuff. And you really got used to that as well. You, you thought, right, I'm loading a big, a big program. Here we go. And you'd hear that kind of repeative clicking and it would, it would get a lot more intense. Yeah, well, it turns out that we're not the only people who, you know, are kind of a bit obsessive with this kind of thing and miss those sounds from back in the day. So I do think, you know, hearing the sounds of old machines is definitely a, a big thing for, you know, ticking nostalgia. Um, but it turns out a, a guy from Germany called Matthias Werner, he's come up with a method of using, and this is not, not new. I remember them doing this on the, you know, the GoTech. Now, the GoTech is a, um, it's a floppy disk replacement unit where you can use USB keys. And, you know, emulates disk images. Uh, but there's actually a few people who put a speaker in there. So it would kind of make the sound that a floppy disk would make. Although it never really sounded right to me on the GoTech. But this one actually works quite well. Now, he's designed a tiny PCB that attaches to the connector to the disk access LED. So then when you're using stuff like a, um, an SD card or a compact flash card inside your old machine to replace the hard disk, there's a tiny electrical buzzer that will emit a really brief click every time the LED flashes on your machine. And there is a video on YouTube by a guy called Route 42 who's demonstrated it. So this is what it sounds like. See if you think this reminds you of like an old Windows PC. Okay, there we go. And maybe also let's start up uh, WinWord 2.0 because that's the largest program I got. That's that, and also let's load a document and hear what that sounds like. And maybe even the help file. Ah, oh, I love that sound so much. <laughs> that is quite authentic, isn't it? It does. It does sound quite authentic, and like, you know, he's talking about this uh, device and and kind of why why it was created as well. And and I think you know with the LED light, that was another thing. You know, like on the Amiga, we'd see it, but also on lots of other devices you'd have that little flashing led light and all that stuff is hidden nowadays you know you've you've just got an aluminum case or you've just got your your laptop or something you don't really see that and i think this is great because it it supports like ssds um it supports you know the latest kind of technology flash um devices in there uh, compact flash uh, sd cards as well and um it's a tiny little board and it's actually being sold at the moment. So uh, you can check it out on a Serda shop. Um, and it's called the Hard Disk Drive Clicker. So HDD Clicker. And it's only uh, 25 euros per, per unit. And I think, um, you know, I actually want one of these. I'd love to see these kind of, you know, getting installed in these modern silent devices. It's, it's weird, isn't it? Like we're, we're looking at, um, you know, cars at the moment and you get an electric cars and stuff and uh, some of them are completely silent and companies the amount are, of times i've nearly been run over by one oh around god the yeah and companies are actually now installing like sounds in them you know you get like muscle car sounds in some of them and stuff mm. and uh people kind of miss that and uh i think this is the kind of computer equivalent of that <laughs> it's it's really awesome I, I love the whole idea with this but i think you know for using a retro machine you know, if you've got the original hardware, it just sounds weird when it's not making any sound, doesn't it? Because you expect that from it. Yeah, you, and, you you get a buzz from the monitor. You know, you get yeah. um, you get the sound of the hard drive going up. You've all sorts of sounds that you just don't experience nowadays. I can imagine taking a kid and kind of playing the old machine, and they're just like, 
how did you cope with this noise? And we're like, we blasted the music over the top of all of that. <laughs> you know? I think the next thing they need to do is emulate the smell of burning dust on like a CRT screen. <laughs> that, a little device. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love the comments on the, uh, the article here on the register that I put in the show notes as well. This guy's like, uh, what next? A bunch of tiny hammers that you can attach to a laser printer to recreate the racket of a dot matrix printer. Maybe a modem screech for Wi-Fi adapters. A, a static <laughs> so. creator for your screen so you can touch the static at the beginning. <laughs> well, I've got an old um, 486 that has like a hard disk in there from 1992. And it still, you know, it sounds exactly like that. But it's, it's getting to that age now where sometimes I'll turn it on, it won't spin up. Don't. But if I give it a little, like, little tap, then it'll wake up the drive and it's kind of getting sticky now. Um, Didn't yeah, I give that, you like a scuzzy drive years ago and you turned that on and it went and that was like a total different sound as well. So maybe they could have a, a, a profile of sounds on these devices you could go through. I, th- I think that drive you gave me, I had my window open and it flew off, I think, like a drone. <laughs> yeah, if you do miss the sounds of old PCs, I, I do think audio is a big part of it. So um, if you want to get hold of one of those adapters, they're available now. I'll let link that up in our show notes as well. And I thought this was quite interesting, a thread on Twitter talking about a very subtle difference between um, a couple of N64 Zelda games, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. And is this something you'd noticed before, Joe? Because it turns out there's actually a bit of a, a graphical rendering bug in here this... um, on a certain item in the game. Yeah, I, I, I've never noticed this because it's such a small detail and I love Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Like, they're two of my favourite games of all time. And it's such a sh- strange, small detail. You know, not a weapon you use too much after early game. So essentially, uh, there's the the Deku stick or the Deku stick, however you want to say it. I always call it a Deku stick. For the uninitiated, for the N64 Zelda games, a big stick. <laughs> you get pretty early like on. It's a staff, isn't it? It's a it's a staff. They they it's a consumable yeah. weapon, um, which you can use on enemies. It's weaker than your sword, but you can use it on enemies. The main use I always found for it is when you're doing puzzles. You can set them on fire. So if you need to light lanterns in a room from one fire, and then there's like ten lanterns you need to light, you light the stick on fire and you run along and light them all. So famously, Majora's Mask came out. Was it within the year? only like a year after Ocarina of Time because of... Yeah, they're very close. It was very close and Majora's Mask used like all of Ocarina of Time's assets and just slightly changed them and slightly changed the graphics and the colours and stuff. Like, not all the assets, but it used a lot from Ocarina of Time. Mm. And the D- the Deku stick, Deku stick is, is, a, is a weapon in Majora's Mask as well. And as it turns out, they both look slightly different from one game to the other. The textures on them are very, very different. Ultimately, they both look like a brown stick, a brown straight branch, which you'd get off a tree. You know, brown with some blacks and other browns on there. And as it turns out, uh, Twitter user DarkEye144 has essentially debugged the games and found that neither of them, from what I understand, are actually using the correct texture of what the stick should have ever looked like. As it turns out, it's actually due to a bug in the game. So in Majora's Mask, it's actually using a texture of Link's hair zoomed in and stretched around the stick. So you it's a, a stick of hair. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, but it looks like a stick. And then in the second one, 
in Majora's Mask, it looks slightly different. And it's essentially, from what I understand once again, a piece of texture from Ocarina of Time, which isn't used in Majora's Mask, because as I say, the assets are all, you know, reused in Majora's Mask. It's an asset from the in-game menu, the border of when you view Link and you put the weapon, when you equip weapons and it shows like a sprite of, of, not a sprite, but, you know, a character model of Link, like holding whatever weapon you've just equipped it in with. And essentially it uses the border, the brown kind of like textured border of that screen and wraps it around the stick. And essentially what what they're saying is they think the creators of the games were aware of this bug because it just, it still looked like a stick. They just left it because it looks fine. It's some kind of texture swapping that's going on then. Yeah. Well, the issue is that it's, um, yeah, I mean, the, the assets for the stick is meant to be um, 8 by 8 Right. But what they've done is, for some reason, there's a bug in the, the code. They've actually loaded in 16 by 16 pixels. So it, it loads the the texture for the stick, but then there's, it also puts in what's after it as well to Got fill you. the other 8 pixels. So that's where you're getting all this extra stuff from in there. So really, it was just a case of, instead of writing 8 by 8 they wrote 16 by 16 by mistake. So it's dragging in loads of extra stuff. But if you look at the the thread that he's done on Twitter, he actually fixes a bug and you can see what the stick should have looked like, which is uh, instead of having these kind of weird textures on it, it is literally just a flat brown stick. Trust trust Zelda fans to get this detailed. Do you think (laughs) there's going to be like a a stick update then? Oh yeah, there might be. (laughs) There might be a ROM where they fix it. Um, But ultimately, all three of them just look like a stick. (laughs) Like with just slightly different patterns on them. Yeah, I don't think in any other game people would uh, spot like such a difference but because it's such a popular title yeah and um because it's so kind of legendary you know everything's been analyzed in it so much that even even the kind of slight difference in texture that i'm seeing here um um becomes a kind of story i imagine they probably looked at it like you know like you said they probably were aware of it but um I actually think it looks better with the bug maybe that's why they left it in yeah i i agree it looks better with the bug it looks more like a stick <laughs> like there's more texture to it. Like, and if, I know it, it's, if it yeah. wasn't a famous stick as well, it wouldn't have this treatment, would it? But yeah, absolutely. A famous stick. If it was a, if it was a really like, this would only happen if it's a notoriously bad famous game or a notoriously good famous game. If it was a completely bang average game, you know, which just kind of came and went, then I don't think anybody would be looking at the stick and the assets that uh, create the stick. And the textures, but because, like you say, it's Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, it's Zelda. This is why we've got the diehard fans looking at these things. And to be fair, if you played that, you know, on RF on your 14-inch CRT TV through the N64 Vaseline effect, you probably wouldn't have even noticed oh, yeah. it all that much back in the <laughs> totally. day anyway. <laughs> Just now we have like HD upscaling and all that. People are spotting these things. So it is an interesting read, though. So if you want to check that out, I'll put a link to the Twitter thread and the article on Nintendo Life. You'll find that. And the rest of the stories in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, a couple of really impressive games to talk about in just a moment, including um, a really cool-looking new fighter for the Commodore 64 and, of course, our special guest, Kevin Backus, coming up on the show in just a few minutes. Before that, though, just a quick reminder that, you know, we bring you this podcast each and every Friday. We do, what, 51 episodes a year? We take one week off between Christmas and New Year. Apart from that, we're here every weekend for you, bringing you up to speed on the news, bringing you a guest every week. We work tirelessly throughout the week, even when, you know, you're really suffering like I am. You know, I've got the man flu. 
I've, I've literally got get the tiny island. We, we couldn't we oh, couldn't record yesterday because Dan was like, "I have no voice." Like we have to wait yeah. for wait for his voice to recover. Yeah, that is the the commitment. You know, normally most guys would be in bed for a week with this kind of man flu that I've got. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> we do do the show every week because we love doing it. But if you'd like to see it continue into twenty twenty three. We do appreciate anything we get into our Patreon. Think of it as a little tip jar. All that money just goes into keeping the lights on and making sure that we can continue to bring the show. Because, you know, when it when it comes up to January, that's when we have all our renewal costs, you know, audio hosting, webs, all that kind of stuff. So it just helps us with the day-to-day running of it. And, of course, we give you back in return for backing us on Patreon as well. We're not all take, take, take. Plenty of perks for being a supporter of this show, isn't the Joe? Yeah, I knew you were going to put it on me this week. Yes, yes. Plenty of you do it so perks. well. I, I don't know about that. But yeah, no, like you say, we always do try to give back. Um, lots of perks on there. Some weeks you get the episode early. Um, most weeks, if not all weeks now, you get a couple of extra news stories. That's become a co- bit of a common theme for us uh, as we are definitely the retro two hour most weeks. So, you mm-hmm. know, any sort of cut content or cut stories are usually left in there for the Patreons. Um, you get access to our Discord which is a really, really good community page. As Dan said earlier on, lots of people suggesting guests for us and news stories, which really helps us out, but also, you know, gives that opportunity. All three of us are on there talking and stuff as well. Um, and then the other two perks, which I absolutely love, you do, we do also do the After Hours, which is the uh, the second podcast we do, which I think we're closing in on 30 episodes now. Yeah, of that. far off. Yeah, we do one of them a month. Um, where we do all sorts on that. We give our own opinions and reviews on certain consoles and our favourite memories of those consoles and particular styles of games, um, as well as kind of revisiting years in retro gaming. So going back and talking about, you know, the 80s and the 90s and focusing on a particular year um, and also doing some game reviews, which has been really fun. We've given each other games to review as well as had our Discord people suggest games for us, which has been really interesting. And then obviously last Sunday of every month, we do do the Patreon hangout, which is where everybody's welcome to come and chat, whether they want to come on camera, whether they just want to listen and literally just hang out with us for a couple of hours on a Sunday night. Most of us have a beer or a cider, um, some chocolate and some sweets. And we all just sit there talking about retro games. Sometimes it goes off on a tangent. We talk about mobile phones, um, you know, OS setups, anything, you know, what did you say, Dan? Movies, movies, all yeah, all sorts, which has just been amazing. And I really, truly feel like I've made friends on there and I look forward mm. to seeing people on there. And sometimes it's, you know, people can't make it and it's a shame and it's like, oh man, you know, that'd be so, you know, looking forward to talking to so-and-so. But yeah, man, we do like to give back. We understand at the moment, times are definitely, you know, are hard, especially in, in the UK and lots of other places in the world. Um, so it does mean a massive uh, amount to us when people do donate you know even if it's just a couple of pound a couple of dollars a month we really really do appreciate yeah. it and we do try to give back yeah um, we're we're, we we're totally like independent we're not like ign or any big kind of thing it's just a free lads kind of doing a podcast interviewing tons and tons and tons of people uh week in and week out yeah and i've just looked actually the next patrons hangout 
is going to be on uh, October 30th. So um, I expect Spooky. full on Halloween costumes for that one. <laughs> oh, um, you guys in so, yeah, Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you'd like to join the Retro Hour Patreon community, new members always welcomed. And of course, for coming on board, you'll get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. And we do have three new patrons to welcome this week. And let's induct them into the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. <laughs> and a big welcome to Burnt. The Amiga Show, which is such a good YouTube channel. Check it out. It's all done on an Amiga video toaster. Amazing. Amazing. And a massive thank you to Ruppel, who all joined us on Patreon over the last week. Thank you so much for your support. And if you'd like to join the Retro Hour community on Patreon, all the details to join up right now are on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, story of the original Xbox with Kevin Backus coming up in just a moment. Before that, I'd like to get your opinion on this, Joe, as someone who um, is not a Commodore 64 gamer. But I know you do enjoy these kind of games. What about this? Someone's actually working on um, a version of SNK versus Capcom for the Commodore 64. Now, this is just a work in progress at the moment. But I've got to say, bearing in mind the hardware this is running on, I think this looks really impressive. This looks really impressive for Commodore 64. It's really reminiscent. You guys might not know it. I'm not expecting you to know it because it's a really niche, odd game was really reminiscent the graphically it really looks like mighty final fight for the nes um which was a version of final fight uh which obviously was a capcom game for the nintendo um where they have these kind of like chibi kind of like smaller sprites but with like bigger heads and stuff you know kind of like cute cutesy looking and obviously capcom versus snk the game it's you know kind of based on which is capcom characters versus snk characters uses like the animation and the sprites and stuff from you know the games which the capcom games and the snk games which were out at the time so like street fighter 3 and king of fighters 99 98 and 2000 um i actually am a big fan of capcom versus snk 2 on the gamecube um so obviously this is commodore 64 but if you told me this was an nes game I mean, even for an NES game, it, it it looks really good. The color palette is very typical Commodore sixty four from from what I know about the Commodore sixty four. Yeah, um, it's kind of muted, kind of pastel colors. Yeah, um, but in yeah. terms of the uh, the graphics and definitely the frame rate and the playability of it, it looks absolutely fantastic. And as you say, it is only in demo form at the moment, um, but they've certainly got a lot of characters on there. There's a you know, quite a lot of playable characters on there. Uh, I want to say maybe 16 by the looks of things, you know, from across the franchises. And then also there's loads of different stages in there, all recreated, you know, from Street Fighter and, you know, King of Fighters, SNK and stuff like that, which looks really cool. Um, even to a point where they've got like the classic, if you let the game run and play itself, where it shows you the stats about the characters, like how tall they were and what year they were born and stuff, which is like in the Street Fighter games. But the attention to detail in it is absolutely fantastic. So really, really impressive. find it odd that they called it SNK versus Capcom. Maybe that's what it's called in other territories. I know it's Capcom versus SNK. Maybe it's a legal thing, <laughs> so they don't get into trouble. <laughs> they swap them around and they'll be fine. Swap yeah. it around and we'll be fine. Um, if, if you made a game called it Hedgehog the Sonic, I'm sure you'd be fine. Yeah, it'd be absolutely <laughs> fine. <laughs> Bandicoot Crash. But yeah, no, I ultimately, my point is, I think this looks absolutely fantastic for the C64. The, the special moves look good. Um, yeah. When they've got the kind of like effects going on the special moves and stuff. But I do know what you mean about the um, 
the colours, I think maybe, you know, you can get like brighter reds and stuff on, on the C64, but I think maybe because there's so much going on, yeah, maybe had to like, you know, kind of limit it or, or, yeah. or do it in a certain way. That 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 could change. You never know. They, they might just be getting it going and then uh, add some more stuff in there. But it does feel a bit washed out but then yeah. i'm complaining about a game that's on the c64 that looks well impressive so you know it's a <laughs> it's a kind of balance isn't it yeah there's that balance and um you know both these demos i've watched there is unfortunately no music maybe that's how they've managed to get the frame rate and the animation on there and the playability looking so good the sound effects which you know sound great but yeah no music as it stands unfortunately and from reading the articles, there doesn't seem to be um, any discussion around the music. So it's just speculation there in terms of... See, that is one thing. The Commodore 64 has got such a good audio chip. It'd be yeah. great to have some music It'd be in great there, to have know, some music like, on there. But maybe it's yeah. just a case it's not possible. Maybe they've just not done it yet, you know, with it just being mm. kind of like in demos and beta versions and stuff. But, you know, as Ravi mentioned there, special moves, the animation on them, not just like fireballs and adukins and stuff, but even, you know, the animations of like spinning kicks and you know, spinning punches and stuff. Is, it, is there like fantastic. a bit of screen shake as well and stuff like that? But um, yeah, I think, I think they'll, they, they might even expand on that and stuff, but yeah, yeah I, I am utterly impressed with this. Like, um, yeah, really nice. And I think it's really impressive as well that it looks like there's only like two guys working on this. Um, John Eggleton and uh, Gianluca Alberico, who are using the, uh, the retro fighter game engine for this. And it looks like you mentioned about the name, Joe, it looks like it's actually based on the, um, Neo Geo Pocket game, which was called SNK versus Capcom. Oh, okay. the Millennium. Okay. It came out in 99, so it looks like that's what it's based on. You know what impresses um, me? The backgrounds, they've got animations of people actually doing stuff. Mm. And you'd think like, oh, they want to save a bit of space. They'd have like, you know, plain backgrounds, but but that really adds to it as well. And the fact that this can run on, because I mean, there are a few comments on the YouTube video. Some people are like, well, you know, is this only going to run on emulation or do you need extra memory? But actually this is designed and will run on a stock 64K Commodore 64 from 1982. So the fact that, you know, it, it's so yeah, fluid and the sprites look gorgeous and yeah, so it looks absolutely amazing. You know, cause I, I always remember playing games like, you know, International Karate and Way of the Exploding Fist and stuff on the 64 back in the day. But God, if this had come out, Back then, I think this would have been probably the biggest selling title on the platform. Everyone would have wanted to own this. So, yeah, it's a work in progress at the moment. But if you want to check out the uh, the latest video that landed last week, it's on the uh, Saberman channel. I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, of course, we're going to be talking about the original Xbox. And uh, I remember Half-Life being such an impressive game on that platform and Half-Life 2 as well. And we're talking about virtual reality at the start of the show. You know, Joe, you're getting into VR. I'm looking over at my Oculus Quest right now. Well, all of our worlds appear to be colliding right now because this is something that has been 10 years in the making. But now this looks almost too good to be true. You can actually play Half-Life 2 in virtual reality. Um, 10 years in the making. How impressive does this look? 10 years kind of sounds standard for Half-Life, doesn't it, in the uh, making? You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, Half-Life 3 has been 20 years in the making. Yeah, stuff not, always so. takes a long time, but this does look really fantastic. Like Half-Life to me, it, it had that kind of cin- cinematic feel that I didn't really mm. get in other games and that kind of immersive like storytelling. And I think the mm. idea of doing that in VR is, is really exciting, actually. Um, later on, I used to play some FPSs. I remember Red Fraction, uh, or Faction was a really good one. 
Um, and that kind of had the Half-Life style of of telling stuff. But that game is so iconic that, uh, you know, putting it into a VR world is a really smart idea. And, you know, just, just seeing the work that they've done on this, uh, on this kind of effort, uh, is it something that you'd be firing up on your headset? Yeah, well, this is a guy called Nathan Andrews who he actually put together a little demo of kind of what Half-Life 2 could look like in virtual reality. And this was back in um, 2012. And of course, that was, you know, before we had stuff like, um, you know, Oculus Quest and really off-the-shelf cheap VR. He was using um, a Sony HMZ T1 back then, and he had some specialised motion tracking gear too. And he put out this little demo, and then, as it turns out, you know, the Half-Life community is such a cult game. You know, there are forums, there are community groups, there are Facebook groups, there are Discord groups. A load of people got involved, and there were dozens of volunteers who, over the last 10 years, have been contributing and actually making this a reality. And now Half-Life 2 VR mod is available to play. Now, this is a free open beta that you can play on Steam at the moment. And again, I mean, even though it's 10 years in the making, this is still very much a work in progress. But there are some um, videos that you can check out, and I'll put the, the article from Kotaku in our show notes too. And I, th- I think because Half-Life 2 is such an iconic game, being able to play something that a lot of players, particularly, you know, hardcore fans have been playing this for like nearly 20 years, being able to see that game in 3D and actually being placed in the centre of the world, that's just something else. Well, it's it's one that's kind of been missed. So they've had like Half-Life Alex, uh, which was the kind of, you know, the modern one. And there was also some Portal games, which um, for me, like, you know, uh, this is in VR, like um, for me, a Portal game would be hell because even playing Portal normally, I felt sick. In VR, it would just be like a whole next level of sickness. But um, Half-Life 2, I can really imagine actually playing in VR, and it's got like great features like the gravity gun and stuff. And um, they're showing a video here of the like head tracking with the uh, gravity gun, and, uh, and it looks pretty impressive, to be honest. Yeah, and all you need is you need the original Half-Life 2 that obviously you can buy on Steam. And they reckon that there's going to be like episode one and episode two support coming very soon, according to the uh, the team's page as well. And uh, the thing is, I mean, with VR, I don't know, you found it on your, your quest, Joe. Motion sickness to me is very kind of subjective. Some games like racing games just send me over the edge, but I haven't really played that many first-person shooters in VR. Looking at this, it looks really, really cool, but I'm looking at it thinking... Yeah, am I going to puke if I play this? Because it looks like you could actually play this on the Quest 2, but I think you need it tethered, you know, with a USB cable to a PC to play it on there. So I've only played Beat Saber on my Quest and then uh, Resident Evil 4. Mm. And Resident Evil 4, I'm happy to report, hasn't made me motion sick at all. And I do get travel sick under particular circumstances. I get travel sick on buses and coaches funny enough but not really in the car um but i've been absolutely fine um but then i've been playing all the bonus modes on it and then over the last couple of nights i've actually played the campaign and there's a part in the game where you have to drive a speedboat and it actually came up with a warning as i got on the speedboat saying you know you're playing the immersive mode this can cause like no good luck uh, yeah it's kind of cause like (laughs) you're on your own yeah really bad motion sickness and the segment's only like five ten minutes long and I was like, whoa, whoa, I'm starting to feel really sick. Like, on yeah. the, um, But ultimately, watching this Half-Life 2, 
it looks all right to me. I can't imagine. I think I'd be all right on it. You know, there's bits where you are on, you know, like a kind of like jet skis and boats and stuff on Half-Life, isn't there? Mm. Maybe similar situation. It's just the water physics <laughs> that might make me feel poorly. But I, you've never played Half-Life before, have you? Is it serious? No, I've, I've, I've never played the half Why? Why are you telling everybody this, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. I, I haven't played the Half-Life games. I should. Since I got shamed a couple of weeks ago for only having completed like 10 games. Yeah, game, well, so. that's worse. That's worse <laughs> than I ever played Half-Life. Well, I, I'm going to shame myself here. I've never, never been untethered from a VR. So I used to have a tethered headset, which was the HTC Vive. And um, I remember playing an FPS game on there, but this was tough because it was an archery game. And <laughs> I just remember, like, you know, I didn't have a bow, but my God, my shoulders were killing after doing that. I was going around doing this archery game, trying to pop balloons, but I really need to get one of these uh, modern headsets, uh, you know, without the cables and uh, kind of totally go free and run into walls and trip over the cat. I can't wait. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, we are the retro hour, even though we know we're talking about, you know, state of the art kind of VR headsets and stuff like that. But I do think the fact that that technology is improving so quickly, you know, compare it, mean, you'd have a room for your, your VR system. I remember. Yeah, Ravi, and, and a huge, back. a huge team as well to develop games. You know, this is, this is just yeah. one modder uh, that's kind of doing well, this. Well, team of modders, yeah. Yeah, t- yeah team of modders, yeah. It. Yeah, but it, and the fact that they are bringing these retro experiences, I think, you know, for us, that's where the interest really lies, isn't it? You know, I mentioned last week how I'd love to play Monkey Island in virtual reality. And, you know, maybe that'll be a thing that modders do, which would be incredible. So, um, yeah, I do think it's really cool, particularly iconic games like Half-Life. So if you're nowhere, check that out right now. The beta is available on Steam, and I'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, if you were a gamer of that generation, then uh, I'm sure you're a big fan of the original Xbox. And we're going to get some incredible stories with the Xbox co-creator, Kevin Backus. He's coming up on the show in just a minute. Before we do that, let's just take a quick second to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor. And that is a long-term sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast, our amazing friends at ExpressVPN. Now, I speak as someone who has actually um, had this experience, been very smug thinking, I don't need a a protective case on my smartphone. You might remember being there that time, Ravi, when I actually dropped it in the car park outside my work. Oh, God, yeah. Smashed my screen all over the place. Well, the thing is, going online, going on the internet without ExpressVPN, that's like using your smartphone without a protective case on. Most of the time, you're probably going to be all right, but all it takes is one drop onto solid concrete, and then you'll wish. You'll be full of regret like I was. So our friends at ExpressVPN, We've got an amazing offer for you as well. And I know, Ravi, you're always our uh, our privacy advocate on this show as well. And uh, you were very pleased when ExpressVPN came on board because you've used them for years. They are your VPN of choice. Yes, yes. Uh, they're incredibly fast. And uh, that's that's a great part about ExpressVPN. You know, every time you're on a network and uh, an unencrypted network, you know, bad things can kind of happen like, you know, hotels are really dangerous for airports as well. People can actually set up networks that are uh, pretending to be uh, the kind of network that you actually want to connect to. And then they can, you know, do a man of the middle attack and they can go in there and they could take all your information and personal details and stuff. And that's where it gets insecure. Um, with ExpressVPN, you will be secure because you've got some amazing encryption there. You know, um, I've got high-level encryption, which basically a supercomputer would take billions of years to get past. Um, it's really easy to use. You just fire up the app, click on it, and then straight away you're protected. 
And that app works on so many different devices. So you can have it on phones, you can have it on laptops. Um, I even have it on my laptop set to fire up as soon as I start. So um, that's really awesome because I can go into any cafe or I can just go around if I'm on holiday or if I'm traveling and I can get onto ExpressVPN, but also I'll be able to watch, uh, you know, Netflix from another country, as well, which is always yeah. a little bonus there. So, you know, if you want to protect your data, then this is a definitely the way to go with ExpressVPN. Yeah, so you can secure your online data today and use our exclusive link and you'll get three months free on top of a one-year plan and you'll make a massive saving as well on the price. So head to expressvpn.com slash retro. That's our link so they know that we sent you expressvpn.com slash retro and a big thank you to our sponsor, ExpressVPN. So next on the show, we are going to be talking to Kevin Backus, Mindscape's International Development Manager, the DirectX Project Manager as well, and the Xbox co-creator. He is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we're here today with Kevin Backus. Now, Kevin has done some amazing stuff. He's been the Mindscape International Development Manager. He's been the Product Manager of DirectX, the co-creator, and Head of Third-Party Relations for the Xbox. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's great to have you on. And, uh, you know, we start every single episode with a question that will really take you back. What was one of your first kind of gaming memories or experiences that you had? Well, I suppose like a lot of people, my first memory was going to the arcades. Uh, I grew up in the middle of the United States in uh, Kansas and at the local shopping center. When I was very young, they opened uh, combination arcade and... Um, bumper car facility, which I, I loved. And I, I remember it very fondly. We used to go also to uh, an arcade that had a robotic bear band and uh, just really some fond memories, not only of the games, but also of spending time with friends. So uh, you programmed games when you were in high school. What kind of stuff was you creating? I mostly created little games that were sort of like space combat simulators and, you know, uh, some like uh, Eliza style chat bots and just little, whatever kind of struck my fancy. Mm. Um, some side scrolling 2D adventures, a few different things. Uh, I actually built my first kit, uh, my first computer out of a kit when I was 12. And uh, it was, uh, it was a Heathkit computer. And uh I got onto the the bulletin board systems at the time, CompuServe and Prodigy, and and you know met other people and kind of traded software uh, through that. It's uh, it was a it was a great introduction to you know what later became uh, the world of social media as we know it today. Mm. That's really interesting because uh, kit computers were quite a thing, and uh, you wouldn't even think of that nowadays. Kind of building your own computer from scratch. Well, in a way, you kind of do, right? I mean, you can sort of put together a, a graphics card and you know storage and uh, motherboard and and do that. I mean, obviously, it's not. I actually, you know, got out the soldering iron and and you know, kind of uh, soldered transistors together. You certainly wouldn't do it that way, but. But some of that same spirit is still alive today with people who, you know, put together their own uh, their own rigs and modify them, upgrade them, overclock that sort of stuff. It, it, it's still alive and well from my perspective. Well, the minor was crashed when I did that. <laughs> um, 
I, w- I was wondering, uh, you went into game journalism then and mm. uh, started working with a, a PC magazine. Um, how important were the kind of games magazines back then? Well, actually, uh, my start was in technology magazines, um, uh, not game magazines in particular. I, you know, growing up in the small town in the in the the middle of, of America, you know, a lot of my friends' parents were like, "Oh, well, you know, Kevin Kevin's in high tech. He'll go into high tech." And and being a you know rebellious teenager, uh, I kind of diverted into uh, film production. I went to uh, to a film school and uh, really enjoyed that. Learned a lot, but there was something about uh, games and technology that I found compelling. So, uh, my first job after college was actually uh, as a labs editor for uh, a company that for for the, the publisher of PC Magazine, a new magazine that was specifically focused on the idea of bringing computers into the workplace, which was apparently a very controversial idea at the time. But you know, personal computers on every desk and people using that. Uh, it was the future. And uh, we helped bring it about by uh, making it a little bit less mystical. So you ended up working at Mindscape. What's the story there? What's kind of like the bridge between the journalism and then going into Mindscape? How did that come about? Well, you know, I was living uh, not too far from their US offices. And I uh, had an opportunity to get to know the, the team there fairly well. You know some some of the people I had met pre- in my previous life uh, who mm. were now working there, making a career of of games, and you know they, you know, sort of started hanging around quite a bit. My fiance at the time took on a, a role there, uh, first in marketing and later in product development. Um, now my wife, and um, you know, since I was there all the time, they were like, "Look, you know, you, you seem to be here often. Why don't you just you know start working?" for us and so so i did they were a really uh, huge company you know we heard about them over here and um I, w- I was just wondering what the culture was like at mindscape and uh you know how big they were and uh was, was it really like a, a friendly group kind of family atmosphere it, it was really exciting i mean i couldn't ask for a better introduction into the game industry um for one thing there were kind of two sides to the organization. There was the game side, but there was also the educational software side, um, which were very collegial, and, and there was a lot that you could learn uh, from each other, but also kind of increased the the overall footprint of the company because they were operating in, in two very, very fast-growing markets. Mindscape, when I joined it, was in the process of rebranding from its original name, the Software Toolworks. And the Software Toolworks is very famous for a number of very early products. I had some for my Heathkit. Uh, I remember I had, uh, of all things, I had a, a recipe uh, organizer uh, from them and, and a few other things that are very famous for a typing tutelage software called Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing. Uh, very few people knew at the time that Mavis Beacon was a completely fictitious person, um, but she introduced a lot of people to the idea of typing, which I hear is important when you have a computer. And so that was great. But also, uh, they were the first publicly listed video game publisher. I think a lot of people don't know that. They assume it may be Electronic Arts or Activision or something like that. Um, Mindscape, actually the first games company on a public stock market. And then finally, and probably most important from my standpoint, we produced games for everything. We mm. worked with Sony, we worked with Sega, Nintendo, 3DO, Amiga, um, you know, PC, Mac, you name it. 
we made games for everything. And what an amazing experience that was to be able to get such a broad range of exposure to all of those platforms at a time when there was such vibrancy and, and everything was new and developing at the time. Um, that's sort of how I ended up at my next stop at Microsoft because we were one of the first publishers to start developing games specifically for Windows as opposed to MS-DOS. Mm. And it was my job to try to spend time with the folks at Microsoft to understand how we would go about doing that. And so I think that, you know, that's certainly um, an important part of my journey was being able to uh, to build those relationships and, and, uh, and build that experience as we started to produce that. And it came about because we were embracing all these platforms. So you mentioned, you know, close relationships there and uh, famously Mindscape had a really close relationship with Nintendo, Um, Mm. you know, and back then it was quite difficult for a lot of publishers, you know, to get that kind of relationship with Nintendo. They were quite, I guess, private, you know, they were very, very strict with their rules and stuff. What was, what was that like? And what games were you working on at the time? Well, you know, Mindscape had a relationship with Nintendo uh, based on personal relationships at the head of of the two companies. In fact, Mm. uh, because of uh, Mindscape's experience developing educational software, we were allowed to develop games using the Mario character. In fact, to some extent, I I would not be surprised to learn that we were were responsible for a brief pause that they had with, um, with the Mario character and a, a refocus on Donkey Kong with things like Donkey Kong Country. I think a lot of people were surprised and disappointed to find out that some of the Mario games that we produced were not games so much as educational software. I think they felt yeah. surprised by that, disappointed. And um, and and I did notice that at the time that, that Nintendo went a bit quiet with Mario and then obviously you know brought him back um, bigger than ever. Uh, but that, that really came about because of relationships between you know, the people at the top of both companies. And, mm. um, you know, I, I mean, I can't say enough about my admiration for Nintendo, something that I'm sure all of your listeners and and and, uh, and everyone kind of involved in this shares as well. Well, were there any uh, particular big titles that you worked on there that you worked with and uh, kind of really enjoyed? Well, I think the best known Mindscape title was something called The Chess Master. Mm. Uh, but there were a lot of very early kind of 3D and CD-ROM based games. You know, uh, I came a- around just as the industry was shifting from floppy drives that had very, very small, very kind of limited graphic capabilities because of the capacity of the of the the floppy disks to CD-ROM. In fact, um, Mindscape had made a deal with LucasArts to convert some of their floppy based uh, point and click adventure games to CD-ROM with you know uh, up up-res graphics and, um, you know, CD-based audio and, you know, a lot of really cool stuff that, that came about with that. But there are also a number of titles that I still feel very, very strongly about. We we had a great relationship with a company based in Paris called uh, Creo Interactive, C-R-Y-O. And um, they did a, a title called Mega Race that actually had like a human uh, sort of narrator. It was a futuristic racing game, uh, kind of a battle game. And you had, and it was like set in a futuristic game show. And so there was actual like live, you know, uh, like, you know, humans that had been filmed um, that were sort of narrating the race and, uh, you know, quite a few different things that, that we did back in the day, uh, including some, like I said, some some very early Windows titles that I was I was particularly 
impressed about because it, it became very obvious to me as a gamer that um, Windows was about to take over the world. That that we were all going to have Windows based PCs, and you know the idea of like going back into MS DOS to play games was going to be anti- uh, antiquated. So you know the question was really how to develop Windows games, not whether we would develop Windows games. Mm. So speaking of Windows and Microsoft, and you mentioned earlier the relationship that you were building with Microsoft moving from DOS to Windows, obviously, Mm. it was about to become absolutely huge. What's the story with you eventually moving to Microsoft and being employed by them? Well, again, you know, we were one of the first publishers to really embrace the idea of doing games for Windows. And so um, it was important to build a relationship to understand the technical capabilities and to be able to integrate between uh, our development teams and Microsoft to get that understanding, the technical understanding, but also the marketing understanding. I mean, if we did this, you know, one of the great things that Sega, Sony, and Nintendo did was that they created opportunities to promote our own games on their platforms. You know, if you mm. want to, um, you know, when we when we did Xbox, we didn't promote Xbox so much as we did Halo or, yeah. you know, uh, PlayStation promoting Grand Theft Auto or Final Fantasy. And uh, so, you know, uh, a gamer would go into a shop and say, hey, you know, I saw this game called Tomb Raider on television last night. I want to buy that what do i need to be able to play it well you need a playstation okay great so i'll buy a playstation i'll buy tomb raider a couple of controllers and so we were looking for that sort of stuff and microsoft kind of really struggled with that because yeah you know at, at the company like games were a relatively small business compared to the behemoth that was operating systems or office or you know development tools or things like that and so you know, I worked very, very closely with a number of the members of the DirectX team, Alex St. John, Jason Robar, um, Jason White, other people who were DirectX evangelists, whose job it was to go out and encourage game developers to start using DirectX and to start developing for Windows. You know, a lot of people forget that although Microsoft is a large and and, and somewhat powerful company, they can't force you to do things on an open platform like Windows. They have to you know, explain to you why it's in your best interests and, you know, how it's going to make your game perform better and do that sort of stuff. That's why the title of evangelist came about because they evangelize the benefits of the platform and, you know, why you might want to, uh, you know, use these new capabilities. And so I worked with them a lot and I kept, you know, expressing frustration over the lack of marketing vehicles that were available for our games, which was a frustration that they shared as well. And so after a mm. while, it was like, well, if you're so smart, you come figure it out. <laughs> so I did. Um, <laughs> and uh, did they did they interview you or was it just kind of like a smooth oh, yeah. transition for you? They did. And what was oh, that? No, like? no. Was, was that intense? Um, it was, you know, because it was a business role more than a technical role, it wasn't the sort of famous Microsoft vetting that you often mm. hear heard about at the time it, you know it was a bit like going to work for nasa um mm. you know like the best and the brightest you know saying to people oh you know i'm, I'm working at microsoft that there was a certain cachet to that uh, but yeah. really it was more kind of talking about you know my perspectives about the game industry and listening to what the people that were there you know were, were interested in um kind of you know understanding some of their frustrations and their aspirations and uh, you know kind of talking hypothetically about well this is sort of how i'd approach that sort of a of a challenge and um you know i I really really enjoyed it very very much um that you know that process of getting to know them um you know a lot of people say that uh if you're a boat owner the happiest days of your life are the days that you buy your boat and the day that you sell it and i would say the same thing is true for many people who go to work for a large company like microsoft my happiest days were the day that i 
arrived in the day that I left. And I think that that's a fairly common sentiment because, mm. you know, I really enjoyed going there. And I also enjoyed kind of taking the lessons that I learned and moving on to the next phase of my career after that. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, they weren't that big on the gaming stuff. There were a few titles like uh, Motocross Madness was uh, one and uh, Flight Simulator as well. Uh, were they really important for the kind of growth of the uh, game section of Microsoft? I think it was, you know, um, Personally, uh, I had an opportunity when I was very young to choose between whether I wanted to, you know, uh, to be a PC gamer or, or buy a Macintosh. And for me, uh, as a as a budding pilot, I got my pilot's license while I was in college um, recreationally. Uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. I'm not I'm not ashamed to say was actually the reason why I chose to you know to buy a pc in my own personal life um it was important it was good i do remember that at my new employee orientation uh we had the chief operating officer of microsoft a guy named bob herbold come to give a a pep talk to the new employees asked for questions and my question was um most of many of the most popular games that are out there, the most successful games involve some element of, of violence, which is something that Microsoft has steered clear of. Um, have you ever considered creating a, a you know kind of a secondary brand that you could release games under games that are a bit more mature, um, had some you know had some violent elements to them? And you know he looked me up and down and said games like why would we ever go through the time and effort to create a special brand just for games and i was like hmm, i wonder if i can get my old job back <laughs> oh I, I was wondering like um back then there was there was a big debate between uh when DirectX came out and open gl yeah. um were, were you kind of like having to defend the advantages of a uh, DirectX quite a lot in the press and stuff um not so much in the press as i i did uh, there was some of that but mostly is with game developers particularly Id Software, who became, um, you know, I became pretty good friends with, with like John Carmack and Jay Wilbur and John Romero, um, you know, trying to get them because they were they were very very strong advocates of OpenGL, and I understand uh, what their perspective was, uh, but it was something that I really uh, was was taken a bit by surprise by because it happened right around the time that I joined the company. Uh, at that time, you know, I thought I was going to go in and start trying to put together some branding and some, you know, programs and and that sort of stuff. And I ended up spending, you know, a large part of the first year at the company kind of defending our position, which was somewhat unpopular. And, you know, when you have beloved icons like John Carmack coming out saying, hey, Microsoft's making a huge mistake here pushing this this standard when we already have OpenGL and, you know, we really want it and we don't understand it, then the fans get involved as well. And it sort of becomes, you know, a a more entrenched position. And I wasn't expecting that. And it did take a lot of time to go deal with that. In addition, internally, you know, the guy that ended up running the direct X graphics APIs and was one of the other three guys that we started Xbox with, uh, Otto Berkus, had been running Microsoft's own OpenGL. And when the decision was to really try to put a lot of focus behind Direct3D, they put Otto in charge. I think the idea was that, you know, there's no better approach to try to put two teams together than to take the guy who was the fierce competitor internally uh, and make it his responsibility to uh, to improve the the other technology that was within the company. And, you know, I think that ultimately, um, you know, you can argue whether um, you know, Microsoft's focus on Direct3D was right or wrong, but I think that you know, if you look back on the last many years of of 
development and how far we've progressed. Uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's, uh, the whole industry has done an unbelievable job of, of kind of figuring out where it wanted to go and how it wanted to use technologies and platforms to get there. So I, I heard that you had to uh, go to ID and kind of talk with them about getting a, a, a direct X version of Quake mm. as well. Mm. Well, Quake free. Um, what was, was that an interesting meeting? Well, you know, I really, really liked them and respected them. And, and I felt that we, uh, built a pretty good relationship. Obviously, um, you know, we wanted to encourage them to do that. They were a little bit put out because I think that, you know, uh, some of the people who uh, preceded me at Microsoft uh, wanted to make a point. And so they had created a, a, a Direct3D wrapper, you know, where some of its software thought it was talking to OpenGL, but it was really talking to a translation layer that that ended up talking to Direct3D, just to make the point that Direct3D was capable of doing it, which is kind of a nasty way of making that point, but, you know, but effective nonetheless. And so they're a little put out by that. But look, you know, all the developers that I worked with, I had such admiration for them and such respect for them. And the conversations were largely politics free it was really more about the technical merits and and you know whether that was inside of microsoft or outside of microsoft it, it was always a meritocracy when it came to technological ideas there was no way that we were going to get a company like id or a company like epic who i also you know was was very fortunate to build a great relationship with tim sweeney and mark rain and the folks over at epic you know all those conversations were really um more about sort of what's the right thing for the product. And that helped to kind of inform a lot of the early thinking about what we wanted to do with Xbox and why we wanted to do it. So Half-Life came to the PC. Did you see a huge growth in PC gaming at that point? You know, kind of like oh, yeah. 90s, early 2000s. You know, I loved Half-Life. Um, mm. One of the last things that I did at Mindscape before I went to work for Microsoft was I had actually gone and licensed the Quake engine to do mm. a game. We never actually ended up doing anything with it, but we were, uh, depending on who you ask, we were either the first or second licensee of that engine, Valve being the other. And so I was very familiar with them. And, you know, my relationship with it obviously predates my time at Microsoft because of those negotiations around that. I mean, I, I, I remember getting beta copies of, I can't remember if I got a beta of Wolfenstein. I definitely got beta copies of Doom before it was released uh, mm. and Quake. And so, you know, that, that, that preceded and predated my time at Microsoft. But the Valve guys, uh, you know, I got to know as like a fellow, like early licensee of that engine, which is one of the first engines that was ever licensed. And so I got to know Gabe really well. And obviously because of Gabe's time at Microsoft, he was very eager to try to build some sort of relationship. What very few people know is that actually I was talking with Gabe about the potential of putting, uh, bundling a version of Half-Life with, I think it was Windows 98. Um, mm. You know, I, I felt really, really good about that. I thought it was a really good showcase. But again, you know, the the team at Microsoft felt that it was sort of the wrong you know, kind of the wrong foot forward that that it was it would send the wrong message because of the violent content of Half Life. Even if the version that was bundled with Windows was relatively violence free, uh, that that association would be problematic. And so it didn't end up it didn't end up going anywhere. But I really felt like that would be a strong statement. You know, more so than than Solitaire or you know Minesweeper. No no disrespect to those you know those pieces of software. They're obviously very very popular. But I really wanted to move. Um, you know, sort of much more casual gamers into understanding what was available, you know, out there in the world of gaming uh, beyond, uh, you know, beyond simple puzzle games. 
Well, talking of a uh, video game violence as well, Game Blocker was a interesting kind of piece of technology. And uh, were Microsoft kind of pushing stuff like that? And also, what was their attitude towards uh, video game violence at the time? Not, not really. Um, I think that their, you know, their approach as a as the steward of the platform was relatively, you know, hands off. Um, you know, it uh, again, my, uh, Windows, Mac. Open platforms. You don't have to have Microsoft's permission to make a Windows game. You don't have Apple. You need to have Apple's permission to have uh, to develop a Macintosh game. And so, um, so I think you know, uh, I don't think Microsoft really had much of a, of a perspective at all about violence when it came to the platform. You know, obviously they wouldn't really promote violent games, um, but they wouldn't really prevent them either. It was sort of a, an arm's length relationship. Now, when it came to Microsoft's own published games, again, as I mentioned before, it was really much more interested in, you know, puzzle games and, you know, uh, simulators and sports titles and that sort of thing that had more broad general appeal and didn't have negative connotations associated with it. So what's the story behind the Sega collaboration with DirectX and Microsoft CE for the Dreamcast? Well, you know, again, that's something that that slightly predates my time at the company. We okay. were actually approached at Mindscape to um, to do that. But but clearly, I, you know, I heard about it a lot when I was at mm. the company and, and we were sort of in the process of, of transitioning towards Xbox. You know, the idea is fairly simple. Microsoft at the time viewed itself, among other things, as first and foremost, an operating system and development tools provider. Uh, here was a new platform that was out there, uh, you know. Bill Gates personally had a relationship with the head of Sega at the time mm. um, and said, hey, if you're coming out with this new platform, you're going to need some tools and APIs and an operating system to go with it. And, you know, so we've just released Windows CE for consumer uh, for consumer electronics, for consumer devices. We think it would be, you know, a great thing, a great addition. It would help your developers to build titles for it. And so uh, Sega licensed it and provided it alongside uh, kind of a lower level API of their own development. Uh, and of course, you know, at the time, you know, most developers were just getting out of using like assembly programming and, you know, very low level programming, you know, hadn't been that many years on since, since, since that was the way that you develop games. And so the idea of having, um, you know, sort of an abstracted operating system like Windows CE with, with the overhead that goes along with it, although there are benefits to doing that, the, the benefits of having a low level API like Sega was providing were, were more compelling. And so I think as a result, uh, we saw more adoption, you know, of those APIs than Win than Windows CE, but I think that it was certainly part of Microsoft's hope that a, a platform is a platform is a platform, and you know whether it's a PC or whether it's you know um, you know some other type of of device, it's something that that they could help to you know to provide the basic functionality that any kind of application uses, file I/O, and you know. That, that sort of stuff. Uh, but again, you know, I think most developers uh, for for Dreamcast, uh, my impression was that, you know, if it was a graphics intensive application, uh, something that really required a lot of horsepower, that they'd rather go um, direct to the metal uh, mm. if they could. So around that time, the PlayStation 2 was announced as well. And obviously the PlayStation uh -huh. had been tremendously successful. Do you yep. think that affected Microsoft's view of gaming and what the future looked like? Unquestionably, uh, I was at the announcement of PlayStation 2 
and uh, went to talk to Phil Harrison afterwards about whether there was an opportunity for Microsoft and Sony to work together. And of course, there wasn't. But Xbox is really the result of a number of different things that all kind of happened simultaneously around that time. You had Microsoft dividing the Windows operating system group into a consumer Windows division and an enterprise Windows division and the consumer Windows division looking for you know a, a reason for being. You had um, the, the kind of cost performance curve really coming down for PC graphics hardware in particular so that it would be feasible to produce a very high performance consumer electronics uh, console device that used you know, PC-based technology. Uh, and then you had, you know, Microsoft itself wondering why it had been unsuccessful in the sort of sub $500 price category. And then last but not least was Sony coming out and saying, we're basically going to be the end of PC gaming as we know it. You know, the mm. the emotion engine in, in PlayStation 2 is based on alien space technology that is light years beyond anything that's been seen before and is going to completely transform the world. And you know, and people are going to, and I think one of the Sony executives actually made a comment about how, you know, nobody was going to be gaming on PCs anymore once PlayStation 2 was available, which certainly got the attention of a lot of executives at Microsoft and wanted to know what was going to happen. The genesis of, of Xbox really goes back to a Think Week piece that was prepared by Otto, who I mentioned before, and Seamus Blackley, where, um, you know, every week Bill would go off and, you know, think deep thoughts about the company and ask each of the teams to write up a document about something that they're thinking about, something that they're, they're really interested in. And oftentimes they would be asked to prepare something on a particular topic. At that time, Eric Rutter, who was Bill's uh, technical advisor, asked the DirectX team to really kind of opine on what, you know, these announcements about PlayStation 2 meant and, and Emotion Engine and what the potential impact to, to Microsoft might be. And so, um, you know, they basically wrote up an analysis that says, you know, here's everything we know about a motion engine, and this is kind of what we think is going to happen with PlayStation 2 and the performance it's getting. And by the way, here's the state of the art of PC gaming, heart, you know, PC graphics hardware and where we see that going. Um, and at the end, it was like, you know, by the way, um, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the past. This might be the time for Microsoft to actually think about jumping into this business as well. Um, and I think that's, you know, it, it without... Um, you know, without PlayStation 2, would Microsoft have gotten into the console business? Perhaps, but I think it's also an open question. During the development of the Xbox, were there any ideas that kind of got dropped? For, uh, oh, absolutely. Final version. Oh, 100%. I mean, the, the original idea of Xbox was really more of a kind of kind of Trojan horse. The, you know, the Windows and the PC platform in general had really expanded a lot over the years because it was a multifunction device that could be manufactured by a lot of different companies using a lot of different kind of components. And Windows was sort of the gatekeeper in the middle. It allowed applications uh, from a lot of different manufacturers or a lot of different developers to talk to a PC, which could be comprised of all kinds of different graphics cards or storage devices or you know motherboards, that sort of thing. And that's that was really the role of Windows. And so it is sort of you know, but that's complicated. It's very difficult, and a lot of the challenges with stability or performance or that sort of stuff is the fact that. Windows could never be entirely sure what applications would run on it or what hardware was running on. And so 
a lot of compromises had to be made. And so the idea was, hey, if you basically had a hardware standard that you got manufacturers like Dell or, or uh, Mitsubishi or you know companies like that to go build, and it looked to the consumer like a consumer device. It didn't require you to install games. It didn't require patches or updates. There was no like Windows desktop. It basically looked like a game console. Like, could you actually really amplify the PC gaming business? And could you have something that would be really, really exciting for, you know, for, for developers and for consumers. And the, the key to that was that you had a, uh, a like a, a hardware standard that all the, all the Xbox hardware conformed to and a very, very, very slim version of windows that, that was the traffic cop between the games that had been developed for windows and for Xbox uh, as one binary that ran on that. And so the idea that in its very earliest phase was that this was going to be something that wasn't going to require software publishers to pay a royalty to Microsoft. It wasn't even going to be manufactured by Microsoft as we manufactured and it was going to enable consumer electronics companies and PC companies to get into the console business. And also, it was something that um, you know that was going to um, you know to really kind of take that that focus and and really kind of run with it. And I think that that's you know obviously very 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 different from where the platform ended up. But yeah, I mean there were a lot of things that as we talked to hardware manufacturers, we talked to game developers, we talked to publishers, we talked to consumers, we talked to everybody. You know, they helped us to kind of refine the focus and to become much more console-like over the development of that, which was over, honestly a very, very short amount of time. I mean, if you look at the you know the time that we first proposed to Microsoft that maybe we should think about making a game console at the time that it hit shelves, very, very short amount of time. Well, I heard you guys were kind of sitting around, um, uh, all four of you, uh, in a group eating like jelly babies in the meetings and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, how, how important were those kind of... Um, you know, discussions and uh, just sitting around the room and like shooting off ideas. Well, they were fundamental, and I wish they were jelly. Uh, there were jelly babies because I have affinity for that. They were actually jelly bellies, which is a very different thing, just a sort of a stinker, small <laughs> jelly bean. But um, I, I mean, those are some of my fondest uh, memories from Microsoft because you know the sky was the limit. We could have done everything, and what we did was. You know, Microsoft really encourages people to think a lot about their business. And DirectX was not just about those technologies. DirectX was about the game industry. You know, when Bill or Steve had a question about Activision or Electronic Arts, they didn't call Ed Freeze and the guys in the game division because they were a competitor to those companies. They called us because we were interacting with them and we were talking to them and we knew what was going on and we would, you know, interface with them. And and so, you know, we had the the freedom and we had the relationships internally and externally to go to uh, Rick Rashid and the guys in Microsoft Research or to go, you know, outside to to game developers and, and really kind of understand things and bounce ideas off of them. Hey, what do you think about this? This is what we want to do. And what's the right idea? And again, it was a meritocracy. The best ideas won. And there were a lot of challenges we had to overcome because, you know, I mean, it's hard to even, you know, think about this from the perspective of where we sit today, but the idea that like, could you, could you create something built on PC technology that was instant on that didn't take, you know, a couple of minutes to boot up that, you know, could you do something that had, you know, high performance um, graphics? I remember, you know, going myself to uh, the office of Craig Mundy, who was in charge of a lot of Microsoft's um, kind of, you know, consumer electronics and graphics related initiatives and, and explaining to him, no, you know, graphics technologies on the PC are every bit as good as some of the stuff that we're seeing out of Sony, maybe even better. And here's sort of what we're doing and here's where we're going. And this is sort of some of the stuff that, 
you know that that we're seeing right now in the that field that we're capable of doing and and um you know in, even internally there was a lot of you know evangelism that had to work but a lot of really amazing ideas you know we were able to go to you know to folks in research to go to folks on the DirectX team like Mike Abrash understand sort of what they were seeing out in that that the world go to manufacturers like Nvidia and ATI and 3D effects and understand what they were seeing and then get together in that room and say hey here's what i heard or like what are we going to do about this or who else can we talk to who else can we bring into the circle like what else do we want to do i mean that was everything that was what made that that all possible that is mind blowing that is to be honest and and just like with, with all these discussions and everything going off you know was there thoughts and kind of like things being thrown out there about like Dreamcast collaboration and the Sidewinder collaboration that Microsoft had, did that all help with the development of the Xbox? Oh, unquestionably. You know, one of the first things that we did was to reach out to our friends that we worked very closely with um, in Microsoft Hardware, uh, Brett Schneff, Rick Thompson, who ran that group, uh, a lot of the folks over there. Because, you know, it, it. what we discovered was that there were other refugees from the game industry like ourselves who had come into the company you know, there was a guy named Don Coiner who had uh, worked at Nintendo uh, and was now in marketing. There was a uh, woman named Jennifer Booth who had been at Sony, who is now at Microsoft, who understood the game industry and understood kind of those perspectives because we viewed ourselves as outsiders inside of Microsoft. N- um, none of us, uh, well, so there were four of us originally on Xbox Auto and Seamus, who I mentioned, and then uh, my boss, Ted Hase. Ted and Otto had been at Microsoft for, you know, for a reasonable amount of time. Seamus and I were relatively new uh, and we viewed ourselves as being kind of outsiders who were, you know, had come in from the game industry to try to, you know, get Microsoft to do the right thing for, for everybody involved because it would benefit Microsoft, it would benefit gamers, it would benefit game developers. And, um, and so we found more of those people and we enlisted their help in this and they became very passionate about you know, about the the idea, you know, developing a game console at Microsoft wasn't a very controversial thought. It was it was pretty obvious. But th- what was controversial and not obvious was whether Microsoft would ever actually do it. I mean, I remember before I went to Microsoft thinking, you know, if, if there was ever another company like a Sony giant corporation that would come into our industry and build another console, Microsoft is the obvious candidate, but they would mm. never do it. It's just not kind of how they do things. And that persisted a lot. Uh, and I think, you know, down to the last minute, there were always questions about would, you know, would Microsoft have the fortitude to get into this business and do it this way? But, you know, working with Rick and Brett and the team in Sidewinder allowed us to do things like create very early mock-ups. Like we created this uh, plastic thing that looked like sort of like a game console that we could put in front of people and say, hey, this is what you need to think about. Don't think about like a boxy PC. Like think about a thing that looks like this. This is what we're talking to you about today. Not a gaming PC, not a junior PC, but something that looks more like a console. Uh, And then obviously, you know, having a game controller that worked with that and, you know, and doing Mm -hmm. those sorts of things helped to bring that to life and make it more real and more concrete than it would be otherwise while that was happening what kind of like alternative names were being thrown out or was it always going to be xbox (laughs) well no it was not always going to be xbox i mean you know we had to call it something and people Mm. were just sort of you know they were referring to it as the direct xbox um you know that that direct xbox like that you know just like they had to refer to it as a thing 
Yeah. Um, figuring like, okay, well, we'll put a pin in it and we'll come back to it later and the marketing people will come up with something amazing that's that's incredible. And so it was, you know, oh, it was that, that DirectX box. And then it was like that, that X box. And, you know, the name DirectX came because you know, the idea was that these were APIs that allow you to target the hardware more directly, graphics or sound or whatever it was. And, but it, and, and there was a family of it. So it was direct draw, it was direct sound, it was direct, you know, play, things like that, direct, you know, blank, mm-hmm. direct X. That's how DirectX came about. So people are like, yeah, so like we're, you know, so these guys are thinking about building, you know, a hard respect for something that would be like a, you know, some sort of a direct X box. And then it was an X box. And then uh, when we got permission to do it, obviously we brought in, you know, the, the big brains and the consultants and they came in and they're like, you know, asked us all kinds of questions. Like, you know, if, if, if this console were, um, were a tree, what kind of tree would it be? Or, or if it was a car, what kind of car would it be? And I remember um, my wife, who was on the project, said, "Well, it would be a, it would be a motorcycle. It'd be a Harley Davidson." You know, mm. people, oh, it'd be a Porsche. It'd be a Ferrari. And so, so they went away and came up with a bunch of names that were all terrible, and they all sounded like car names. Mm. Um, and uh, we're like, "No, no, these are awful." And they're like, "Oh, well, you know, we're just trying to gauge your thoughts about stuff. These aren't the real names." And then they went off and did more exploration. And um, I remember we we're in a meeting. They come in, they're like, okay, we tested all these names, including Xbox, and we have one, we have a winner. We have a, a name that is going to knock your socks off. This thing tested through the roof. Everybody loves it. <clears throat> we think this is fantastic. We're like, great. Lay it on us. What's the name? They're like, the Microsoft 11X. We're like, what? The 11X. You know, because it like goes to 11, you know, it's like Spinal Tap. It goes to 11 and the X and it's mysterious. <laughs> And like we look at each other like these people are crazy. And so I turned to <laughs> Don Coiner and he's like, uh, go lock up the Xbox trade landmark. And I'm like, yeah, I think we should probably do that. So we went and did that. We had to buy Xbox.com was owned by a German porn company. Nice. So we had to go buy that in secret. Like we had to go create a shell company. And so we bought that from them. Uh, there was actually a, a publicly listed company in the US whose ticker symbol was XBOX, but they were in the process of going out of business. So they were very happy to get like a small amount of money. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we kind of went and locked that up. It was not a great trademark. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of negatives to it. You know, the letter X in Japan signifies bad or, or mm-hmm. stop, or, you know, so there's, there, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious. Um, one of the things that you know I, I realized from a lot of product naming over the years is that ultimately it just becomes like a natural thing. Like you just can't imagine it as something else. And so whatever initial concerns people would have, invariably over time it just becomes like an accepted fact that this thing is called this, and and mm. and people, you know, whatever they may think of it, originally, eventually it just it just becomes natural and comfortable. I was I was wondering, you know, when Bill announced it at uh, GDC and mm. stuff, um, mm. it, it must have been good to talk about it after oh. working on it in secrecy. It was so fantastic, but it was also really weird because, you know, we had been talking about this in secrecy for so long, particularly when the product actually launched. I remember Seamus and I were in Tokyo uh, for the Japanese launch, and we're going to these places that we've been to a hundred times in Akihabara and places like that. And suddenly there are these big displays with Xbox, and people are wearing hats that say Xbox. And it's like, how do people know about our secret project? Like, you know, it was kind of a weird <laughs> adjustment to make 
from this idea of like secrecy and people not knowing about it to everybody knows about it and everybody's talking about it. But mostly we were just really, really happy that everybody loved it. The reaction that we got to Xbox was not what a crazy idea, like, oh my God, this is so original and, you know, so, you know, such a, you know, such a, an innovative idea. The reaction that we got was what the heck took you guys so long? which mm. I think is a great, great reaction. You know, it makes you feel like you're on the right path when everybody's like, well, duh. I mean, it's obvious that you guys were going to build it and it was going to be like that. The other weird reaction was that at that GDC, we had a lot of people coming up to us saying, hey, um, what company were you guys with originally? And we're like, what do you mean? Well, like, we don't remember Microsoft buying a console company, they assume that there's no way that Microsoft could have come up with this idea on their own. They must have bought a company that was already developing it. And that wasn't true. It was, you know, it was, it was entirely homegrown. And, you know, honestly, I mean, no disrespect to Microsoft, but I kind of took that as a compliment that they felt like it was something that was different from what Microsoft did in the past. Because in truth, one of the things that I had done particularly was to look at a lot of Microsoft's efforts in the consumer electronics space, most of which candidly were not that successful, trying to understand why. And oftentimes it was because they tried to do something in a different way. They tried to kind of move the industry in a different direction rather than trying to improve upon the direction that things were already going. And so the fact that people understood that in the game industry, game developers who we respected, who we loved, that they said, this is something that, you know, that we can't see Microsoft doing. I mean, it was kind of a mixed blessing because I didn't want them to feel that about Microsoft, but I did want them to feel like it was something that was different than the approaches that they had seen in the past. Yeah, I guess it was uh, kind of easier for Sony to do with the history of the Walkman and the kind of cooler stuff like that. Was it hard to you know, convince people that it was it was actually going to be really cool. And, oh, yeah. Oh, know, yeah. Having to get celebrities involved and uh, stuff like that as well. It was less about celebrities. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it absolutely that was a concern from the beginning. And we did a lot of focus tests, um, you know. And honestly, you know, we had to get Microsoft to get out of its own way. I remember, you know, when Bill went on stage and said, we're going to spend $100 million to market this thing. And it was kind of the the cool thing that Microsoft was doing at the time. We were inundated by people from other parts of the company who wanted to be part of that. And a lot of them said, well, you know, we're gamers, which, you know, was kind of a mixed bag because a lot of times people who are gamers don't really understand the best way to make a game. And so we had to, you know, be very cautious about it. But a lot of executives would come through and say, all right, we heard about this thing that you're wasting billions of the company's dollars on. Just tell us what it is so that we can get, you know, get it over with. And, you know, we'd explain it to them and they'd say, okay, but what's, you know, okay, so you're, it's going to play games and that sort of stuff. But what's the silver bullet? And I'd never heard that term before. What's the silver bullet? Well, it turns out this was a term that Microsoft used for marketing its products where, like, what's the feature? What's the one feature that puts you up against a competition that puts you over the top? Like, what's the silver bullet that kills the competition dead? And so they say, you know, does it do photo editing or like, can it, you know, run office or web browsing? And we're like, no, it plays games. It plays games. You know, they look better. They play better. You know, they sound better than games on any other platform. And that's why people buy consoles is to is to be able to play those amazing games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you've got games, but they've got games. So, like, what's the thing that's going to be your like your differentiator. And we're like, the games, the games are going to be the differentiator. And we had to do focus groups to prove that. And in fact, we would go into focus groups and we'd say, okay, 
Microsoft, this is before we announced it. Microsoft is thinking about building a game console. Massive amounts of laughter in the room. Oh, Mike, the spreadsheet company? And then, of course, the invariable <laughs> jokes would come out. You know, it's going to blue screen. There's going to be patches, blah, blah, blah. Okay. The moderator would say, let's assume it's a really great console, though. Like, let's assume it's going to be really, really good. You know, what do you imagine that this console would do? You know, somebody says, well, you know, play play games, obviously. Okay, obviously play games. Um, you know, what if it could play audio CDs? You know, PlayStation could play audio CDs. What about that? Yeah, okay, fine. What about DVDs? DVDs are just becoming a thing right now. And so and people would say, yeah, that's that's pretty good. Free DVD player in my console because, you know, we have a DVD player in the living room, but I'm going to put this in the bedroom and so I could have a DVD player. Yeah, okay, that's good. Well, what else would have? What about uh, like web browsing? It's like the record scratches. And people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not talking about a console now. We're talking about a PC. And then it's going to be, they're back to like, it's going to be bad. It's going to crash. And it's going to, all that sort of stuff. Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry. I, I, did I say web browser? Oh, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to, it's going to have like tips and tricks about, you know, upcoming games and like videos and like all the stuff that you would see in a web browser, right? Uh, but like specifically around games, and then like people are like, oh, well, I like that idea. And so that became very, very important for us to understand that there is a line in people's minds where you move from being a console to a PC. Web browser was kind of where that line was. And mm -hmm. so we would say things like, okay, so if Microsoft were to build a console, what do you think the benefits of Microsoft building that console would be? And they would say invariably three things. Number one, Bill Gates, the richest man in the world, will make sure that there is software for this thing. And they all had stories about the Atari Jaguar or 3DO or, you know, or, or some sort of system that they had bought where they bought it and then the company moved away from it and there, were no, there was no software for that. That's not going to happen with Bill. Number two, Microsoft has its fingers in all these technology pies. It's probably going to be very strong from a technology standpoint. They know secret things and, you know, they have access to stuff. So it's going to be very advanced technologically. And that's why you saw a focus on the diversity of the software and on the power of the technology. And the third thing that they focused on was network gaming. At the time, nobody was doing network gaming. The Dreamcast had come out with a modem. We decided to forego the modem and put in an Ethernet jack. And a lot of people were very, very surprised by that because, you know, there were no Ethernet connections behind the television. Uh, but what a lot of people said was, I think that over the this generation of consoles, this next console I buy, I think that during the time that I own that, that network gaming is going to become important. And so even though I don't do it now, I want a console that has the ability to do that down the road. And so that's why the third thing that we really focused on was Xbox Live and all the networking capability. We heard that. And the other thing that we heard loud and clear on top of those three things was, you know, Microsoft kind of stands behind this thing and Microsoft brings those benefits, but Microsoft is not a consumer company. And so that's why all the early messaging was basically Xbox from Microsoft. And you did not, it was not the Microsoft Xbox, you know, the, mm. the Microsoft part was there, but it was a secondary thing that stood behind the product. And, you know, a lot of the early press around that was like, look, we're in our own building that's off campus. And, you know, we, you know, ride skateboards and we, you know, do all these <laughs> crazy things that you don't think of Microsoft doing because that was meant to say, look, you know, Yes, we are part of the Microsoft family, and we take advantage of all the benefits from that, but we are doing something that is very different than what the company has done before um, and is really focused on you know, developing the best possible console that we can deliver, not sort of doing our own thing and getting people to come over to it. So I guess one of our last questions would be, which is one I'm absolutely dying to ask, um, I read that you were there in the meeting when Microsoft discussed buying out Nintendo. What was that like and how did that go down? 
it was horrible. So, you know, before spending billions of the company's dollars, uh, the executive team really wanted to make sure that they had left no stone unturned. It was very important mm. to be in that business. Um, it was unclear whether the right approach was to build you know, our own hardware and spend all the money and do all this sort of stuff. Because, you know, Microsoft really, for all of the criticisms of Microsoft that have been leveled at it over the years, is a very collaborative company. I mean, it works very closely with hardware manufacturers and software developers. And um, and so going out on its own and building a piece of hardware was something it had never done before. It had never built its own PC. It had never kind of done that stuff. It enabled other people to do that. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, that Steve Ballmer in particular really wanted to do is to make sure that no stone had been left unturned. So he said, before we do this, I want you to go down the road to Nintendo and ask whether they would, you know, be interested in potentially, uh, you know, some sort of a merger opportunity. And we knew that, you know, from years and years of working with Nintendo, that they were a fiercely independent company that, you know, that had a perspective on the industry and on the world um, and that it was unlikely that they were going to be receptive to that. But we set up the meeting. Now, at that time, you know, Microsoft and Nintendo were literally neighbors. Like we could see Nintendo's U.S. headquarters from the front door of our building where we were designing uh, Xbox. And, um, you know, their employees and our employees went to the same fitness club. Uh, as an employee, employee benefit. And so we would hang out with them. They would beta test Microsoft hardware and software and that sort of stuff. Obviously, when we announced that we were going into the into the console business, that changed dramatically. And, you know, an edict went out from Nintendo that you can no longer do anything with Microsoft anymore. And in fact, um, a lot of the Microsoft, or a lot of the Xbox team were learning to ride motorcycles on a little parking lot that had been used by the fitness club while they were rebuilding their parking garage. Nintendo immediately brought out the bulldozers and tore up that parking lot. Um, but we were dispatched to go meet with them. It was, um, and it was just people that were clearly speaking two different languages, both literally and figuratively, you know, uh, I think they, you know, the Nintendo team was polite, but they just thought it was an absurd notion that they would ever give up their independence and be acquired by anybody, much less Microsoft. They were very excited about the prospects of GameCube and, you know, very excited about their own internal uh, game development capabilities and their franchises, and and they just didn't see a point to it. And so, you know, it was um, it was it was very difficult. You know, having put all this time and effort into developing what we thought was a really great notion for um, for Xbox, which was really more designed to to focus on the PlayStation audience than the Nintendo audience, and then to put that aside and uh, and go hat in hand to Nintendo and say, hey, what do you think about joining forces? You know, it, it did not go well. And obviously, you know, as I mean, as we can all tell, it, it, it never went, it never really went anywhere. But um, yeah, that was, that was kind of frustrating to be kind of told, hey, put put all of your dreams on hold for Xbox, go see if maybe we can just get out of this by buying another company, you know, especially given my, my love and admiration and affection for for Nintendo uh, to be put in that position was awkward. Pretty interesting piece of game history. Um, now you're working with Dave and Busters as well. And uh, yeah, that seems to be going fantastically. Um, can you tell us a little about that? Yes, I joined uh, just shy of 10 years ago. Uh, I'm the senior vice president of entertainment and game strategy. Uh, our team is responsible for really everything to do with entertainment within our 150 
locations across uh, the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we just announced recently that we're going to be expanding into the Middle East. Uh, we also acquired a company called Main Event that is focused on a slightly younger demographic and incorporates uh, bowling and laser tag and gravity courses and and things like that. Um, you know, and for me, it kind of comes full circle because uh, what I love about Dave and Buster's and about the arcade industry in general is that it is that physical connection of playing games together in a social environment. The games are very, very casual. In fact, it's not so much about the games themselves as it is about that social experience that you have with your friends. So for me, growing up, where my friends would come over to my house and we played John Madden football on a Sega Genesis and the four of us would be sat on a couch together uh, playing side by side, that experience still exists, even in a world where you have PlayStation Network or Xbox Live and you can play against 200 people, but you're never with them physically you know, that sort of experience is part of the overall experience. The reason why Xbox exists in large uh, part is because we were successful at convincing Microsoft that people play different kinds of games in different kinds of settings on different kinds of platforms. And that the what you play on a console is different than what you play on a PC, which is different than what you play on a mobile device, which is different than what you play in an arcade. And so, you know, so I think it's all part of a well-rounded uh, experience for people who really love games the way that I love games and the way that I'm sure you guys love games that, you know, sometimes you want to play a game two feet away from a giant high resolution screen with a keyboard and a mouse. Sometimes you want to play sat back on a couch with a, you know, with a wireless control in your hand. Sometimes you want to play on a mobile device on a train or a bus. And, you know, sometimes you want to play uh, with your friends. And, um, you know, for us, Dave and Buster's is just shy of 40 years old. And I think what's made it really special and unique is that it combines not only arcade games, but also food and beverage. So you go out with your mates for a night on the town and you have, you know, some cocktails and you play some games, you win some prizes, you have a steak, you know, and you go home happy. Uh, and you remember the time that you had with your friends, much like I remember growing up with my friends with bumper cars and arcade games back in Wichita, Kansas many years ago. Uh, and I'm really, really happy about that. And I'm glad that it's, it's you know, that the arcade industry uh, has remained vibrant and much more successful than people think. You know, Dave and Buster's has a nearly $2 billion a year turnover, uh, which I think surprises people who want to convince themselves that arcades went the way of the pet rock back in the late 70s or early 80s. You know, our experience is very broad and very general, and it's really kind of game focused and, um, and it's centered around that. And, and I couldn't be more proud of that. Well, uh, if anybody wants to check them out, we've got one in Manchester and we've got one in Birmingham as well. So um, our UK guys can go and check that out. Well, Kevin, it's, it's been amazing having you on and uh, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's my pleasure. I enjoy talking about this and uh, I thought that you guys asked some very, very insightful questions, including some topics that I probably rather left forgotten, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll go have a, a drink and try to forget again. Uh,